On today's show, our guest is Owen Zup. Owen is a commercial airline pilot whose passion for flight began in childhood. His career has included remote regional charter flying, flight instruction, international ferry flights, flight testing, and airline operations. Owen is a highly experienced pilot and possesses over 20,000 hours on a wide range of different aircraft. He holds a master's degree in aviation, has authored six books, and his writings on the subject of aviation have been widely published. His work life began as a paramedic before moving into aviation, but his career as a pilot was halted abruptly with the collapse of Ansett Australia. This was the catalyst for a new direction, which included not only flying, but writing, self-publishing, and a commitment to go all in. I'm a huge fan of Owen's work, and I know that you're going to learn a lot from his methodical and strategic approach to life. Please help me in welcoming Owen Zup. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass and this is the Go All In Podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. G'day Owen, thanks very much and welcome to the show mate, it's great to have you here. G'day Rob, it's great to be here. Excellent. Well, look, I like to start off with all of my guests with a quick little get to know you game. You might have heard that on some other podcasts that I've done. It helps us calm the nerves. It warms us up a little bit and it helps us get to know you a little bit more as well. You ready? Go ahead. Okay, cool. All you need to do is just tell me the, the first thing that comes to mind. Do you prefer international flying or domestic flying? At the moment, international, but I, I'd have to say in terms of my career, I've, I've preferred domestic. Two engines or four engines? Two. Late nights, or early mornings? Early, early mornings. Do you prefer to self-publish or do you prefer the traditional publishing route? I prefer hybrid, self-publishing mainly, but there are certain topics where traditional publishing accesses audiences you don't uh, always get. Cool. Would you rather fly a tail dragger or a tricycle undercarriage plane? A tail dragger. Why do people say that? I don't have a tail dragger. <laughs> people with them say that. They're more fun to fly, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Would you rather fly out of a bush strip or a seal runway? Oh, bush strip. Love it. Every time? Yeah, love it. This is the most important question I could ever ask an airline pilot. Is it Boeing or is it Airbus? Boeing. Every time? Yes. Look, look at that. There was not a second hesitation. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, mate. Well, people come on over to this podcast to learn about others that have gone all in. So if you could, please, mate, could you share with us your biggest all in story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from the decisions and your commitment to success? Sure, Rob. It's uh, in a long career, you tend to have a number of decisions along the way. But in terms of all in, probably the first major time I made an all in decision was not long after I left school in that I had a successful business cadetship, but I always had a passion to fly. And unfortunately, that business cadetship was about six days a week, 12 hours a day. It didn't allow me to go to night school or any of those opportunities to learn to fly. So ultimately, I made the decision to leave. The other cadet went on to a very successful career in business, which I have no regrets, I must say that up front. And I went into the ambulance service because of the rostering and the, the pay as such, it allowed me to learn to fly. And then once again, I had another decision to make because back in those days, an airline generally excluded you from selection once you reached the grey and old age of 27. Yeah. So 23 years of age with a commercial pilot's license, I had to get experience. And I loved the ambulance service. I spent four years there and I wouldn't swap that time for anything, but I had to leave the security of that profession 
to try and get a flying job, even though there was no flying job on hand at the moment. And it was the right decision ultimately. But as I think I said to you off air, initially I didn't think I was a particularly all in person. But when I look back at that phase of my life, particularly after leaving school in those first probably five or so years, there were some definitely some all in decisions. Aviation's not a cheap game to get into, is it, as a young bloke? And you spend a lot of money getting your training and whatnot. And then on the other side of it, there's no guarantee. So would I be right in saying that you kind of were holding on to the AMBO job a little bit as a, as a bit of a crutch before you dived in and went all in on the aviation career? To a degree, I think more the case that I just physically didn't have the finances to um, finance flying training without that job. Uh, But the moment I got to the point where I had a license and I had to make a decision, I I definitely moved that way. There was the option, I suppose, to take out a a personal loan, but then you're going to have to repay it somehow as well. So the ambulance service did provide a definite means to an end. But that being said, you wouldn't stay in that job unless you had a genuine desire to help people and a genuine desire to be in that trade. You, You saw a lot of people come and go. Mm -hmm. When you were early on in your aviation career, you must have been faced with a lot of different choices. How did you keep on point and keep yourself tracking towards your end goal? Obviously, that was an airline job. And what did you do? What was your thinking around that? What was the process? I think it's the same with anything that you uh, look at long term. You have long term goals, but you have to have intermediate goals as well. So you say, where do I want to be and what do I need to get there? And I guess you could almost have the analogy of Tarzan wants to get to a place, but he swings between trees. So mm-hmm. I would say that the next step I needed multi-engine experience on aircraft with more than one engine. Uh, I needed to get a certain type of, and I would move jobs to gather that experience. So you keep the long-term goal in mind and you'd have to strategize what are the intermediate steps. That being said, you also have to have the ability to pivot and move left or right. Should the industry change its demands Or should an opportunity open up that you think, well, no, actually, that is something I would enjoy doing, necessarily be the quickest tree to get to the end goal, but it might be something you want to do. So I think you have to have the long game, but you also have to have the strategies to achieve that. Sounds like you had to apply for a lot of different roles, a lot of different jobs. We're all faced with disappointment throughout our careers, both professionally and personally as well. How, how have you handled the letdowns that you've experienced? That must have been a hard thing as a young guy where you, you know, you're ticking the boxes, you, you're getting what you need, and then it's time to move on to the next thing, but you come up against a roadblock or a no. How have you handled that introspection yourself? I think, as you say, everyone has that in every career they decide. I had a major one where I thought I'd achieved my goal as an airline pilot and the airline collapsed. So I think it's a little bit like you apply yourself in the aircraft itself. You can't get too emotional about the situation. You have to break it down into bare bones and say, what do I need to do to recover from this? And have have you one day where you want to kick the bag across the room and get angry and (laughs) hate the world, but that long-term will bear no fruit. I do remember when the airline collapsed at five o'clock in the morning, they shut the doors and I was left standing at the airport. The first thing I did was drive to a regional airport and get a job with a small aeroplane company. So the quicker you can get your head game around it and enact a plan of action, the better is probably the thing to do. You're going to have startle factor, you're going to have emotional input, but you've got to minimise that and enact a plan. That translates across all aspects of your life, doesn't it? Uh, Because disappointment's just like a, it's like failure. It's a natural, normal part of life. And uh, I find for me, emotions sometimes get in the way. I get upset and throw my toys all the time, but it really mm. lasts for very long. It's just one of those things you've got to move on from, right? 
It is. And I think the more you get exposed to it, like anything, you recognise, I'll get through this. And the emotional element and the time frame for that gets less and less. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but it is important that you recognise it will have an emotional impact, but your response is what will determine where you go from there. Well, being in command of an aeroplane means making a lot of decisions based on the information that you have at hand, your training, of course, and ultimately your experience as well. Do you, do you find that that methodology that you have as an aviator transfers uh, into your business and to your personal life as well? Absolutely. I, I wonder if you've hacked my computer because I'm currently writing a book on that. <laughs> um, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's something that you translate where you have to gather information, review it, assess the situation, decide, and then evaluate, go back and look at it. And it does, it translates into basically every aspect of your life, obviously in different ways, but you have to realize just as on an aircraft, you have different levels of severity. There's red warnings that mean you need to put it on the ground now. There's amber ones, which mean we've got to do this quite quickly. And there might be a white level that says, when we get to where we're going, let's get it fixed. And those sorts of philosophies, you're absolutely right, Rob. They translate into life, they translate into business. And I apply those daily, maybe not in such a, a compressed form, but it gets to a stage where it becomes the normal habit of, of assessing and making decisions. Does the master caution warning light go off for you in your business every now and then? Oh, absolutely. It probably doesn't startle one to the degree that it does if you were sitting at 37,000 <laughs> feet, but it, it does give you that warning. And just as it evokes a response in an aeroplane, it evokes a response uh, in a business plan, in a relationship with whatever you're doing. I've been really lucky in my life to be exposed to a lot of different training in the Australian Defence Force. And one of the things that I come up against in that, and I, I guess I didn't realise until I left, was sometimes you're put in really precarious situations that require you to follow through on your training. Can you offer a comment on for people that are undergoing some sort of training right now? And you've sometimes in training, you've really got to go all in on your training because it means life and death on the other side of it. But at the time, it's really hard to go, oh, well, you know, what are we doing this for? It's difficult. Um, as a flying instructor, you would have seen that plenty, right? Absolutely. I think the, the point about the training too is that by the nature of the beast that we live in at the moment, a lot of the time there's a lot of, I won't say superfluous training because it is all something you may draw upon, but it, I'm sure you saw in defence you could walk out of lesson, there's probably three core components that at the end of the day, that lesson you want to take away from. And I think in terms of a training element, that is always key. And it's something I tried to impart as a flying instructor was that, okay, we've done this whole lesson. I know your head is spinning at the moment, but what are the three takeaways? And I think that skill set also allows you when you are under pressure, you can't take in the whole wealth of information you've absorbed. But if you've got three key takeaways, you can focus your mind on that. And I think that's an important thing in training is to recognize that it's all worthwhile, but what are my three takeaways today? And I still do that after each flight. As I drive home, I will say, okay, what are three things I could have done better today or three things that I learned today? But I've always broken it pretty much down into three things. And I think any training course that, that's probably advisable because otherwise you can suffer from overwhelm, particularly I'm sure you experience in defense when you're getting a wealth of information, as they call it, the old fire hose of training. You have to break it down so that your brain can absorb. 
I found myself in a situation parachuting one time and it's a funny circumstance. Well, I guess it wasn't really funny at the time, but when I look back at it, I, I had a, there's two types of malfunctions you can have parachuting. You have a high speed malfunction or a low speed one. And they are exactly what you think. A high speed malfunction usually happens obviously while you're in free fall and you're not under canopy. Um, and I came together with one of my mates and we, we bumped into each other and it knocked my handle out. I was jump, jumping a military rig, not a sports rig. And the handle came up under my arm and I couldn't get it. It's called a floating handle. And the drill is, you know, have, have one go at it. If you can't get it, then off you go for your reserve. And I missed out. I was pretty high when it happened. It was about seven or 8,000 feet. And so I had a little bit of time to go and I had one grab at it. I missed it and I had another grab and it was right up under my arm floating behind my back and I kind of twisted myself up and I was on my back and I found it and I, I pulled it and I dumped my parachute a lot higher than I should have of course because that was that malfunction mm. but when I got on the ground I didn't have the handle in my hand and I was like well where because normally it's in your pocket mm. like wearing a pair of overalls in your pocket yeah. I got on the ground and I was like well, where's my handle and I picked up my parachute and I walked into the shed and I gave it to the riggers they went to pack it and he goes where's your handle and I was like I don't know. And like my training had just yeah. been, and I, yeah. it happened so quickly that I couldn't remember what had happened. And then I realized what had happened a little while later. And it wasn't until a couple of days later that I realized what had actually happened. And it was after hours and hours and hours of training under these rigs of hot and sweaty and trying to do all of this stuff. Have you experienced something like that in your aviation career that you've had to lean on your training and it was instinctive? You didn't realize? I think there's probably been a, a number of instances at different levels of severity. The only one probably comparable to your situation was I did have an engine failure in a single engine aircraft um, over the Blue Mountains west of Sydney or probably 30 years ago now, if it scares me to think that far back. And um, I was doing a CHAPS commercial license test and we, we had to do a forced landing. I do vividly remember in the last phase where we're effectively gliding down because the engine has, has ceased to operate that airspeed was critical and I could hear my instructor, who was my father, I could hear his voice saying, the aeroplane doesn't know the trees are there, just fly the aeroplane, fly the aeroplane. And the, once again, it broke down to about two or three elements that I needed to do to get that aircraft on the ground safely. And you're quite right, your training kicks in. And it, I think my pulse rate was probably quite normal till I get on, got on the ground, but I reckon once the event was over, my heart was almost bursting out of my chest. But during the actual process, the training kicked in and the focus was such that I couldn't get a motive about the situation. So, yeah, I think that was probably the, the most relevant case to something you've experienced there, Rob. But uh, I wasn't hurtling to the earth with nothing but me and a bit of canvas <laughs> wrapped around me. I, I had some metal, unfortunately. Yeah. Same thing. You just fall a little bit faster than me. Yeah. So you got the ability to glide. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. When I think back of it, I'm glad that I listened in that training. I'm glad that oh. I was all in on that training and to begin with and anything that you take on on the start you're very motivated and you're listening intently but yes. you know two weeks into a free fall course you're kind of like oh my god this is hard work it's difficult and the motivation goes away the discipline takes over but gosh i was glad that i listened and i'm sure you were as well and the foundation of so much training is based upon people's mistakes failures and errors in the past we were talking about how everyone will face failure. Some of the greatest learning experiences, as I'm sure a lot of your guests on this podcast say, but a lot of training itself is rooted in lessons we've learned through other people's mistakes. 
Mm -hmm. Well, I just wanted to shift gears for a second. Thanks for sharing all of that stuff with me. I know that you've been all in on an aviation career for a very long time, but you, when you came unstuck at ANSET there and the airline came undone, there was a lot of time for you to kind of look inside and decide what you wanted to do. And a, and a writing career was blossoming there. And you're an author of six different books. What would you say to somebody who was thinking about kicking off a publishing career? Because putting your thoughts and opinions out there to the world can be a very daunting and scary thing. How did you overcome that on the front end of it? I mean, you had to dive all in and have a crack at it at some point. How did you overcome those emotions? Gee, you've got some good questions, Rob. That was probably the one fear I did have, uh, particularly in a professional industry like aviation. When you start to write about it, one thing you are never in aviation is a know-all expert because mm -hmm. it will turn around and bite you the moment you think you know it all. You learn until that final flight. And if you think otherwise, you're complacent and complacency has killed a lot of pilots. So for me then to come out and write things about aviation thinking my other pilots are reading this, <laughs> that was very daunting. I was waiting for him to go, oh, zuppy, you donkey. But <laughs> it probably took 12 months of guys actually coming up to me and saying, oh, mate, thanks for putting a pilot's perspective out there rather than just an aviation journalist or, or thanks for your article on such as that's something I've always thought or, or my son's learning to fly and he really appreciates it was only probably I reckon after about 12 months to two years of that sort of feedback that I didn't push for in any way that I started to put that aside it was a, a really big hurdle out of all of it the actual writing research learning the publishing process etc that is all steps that you undertake in any business but to overcome that hurdle of gee what are people thinking that did take me quite a time. Did you ever find yourself in a, uh, in a flight deck with a captain more senior than you going, hey, and pointing at your magazine article? Uh, often had them say a couple of things. Yes, they've said, I read your article on this. B, I've had them say, where do I know your name from? Uh, and then about two hours later, they go, you write for the magazine, don't you? But the most common one, or it's happened on a number of occasions, is I've been a passenger on an airline and I've sat there in uniform and I've looked across at the person beside me and they're reading one of my books or one of my articles. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, that's happened a number of occasions. So uh, that, that you say it, anything to it validates you a little bit. Uh, not that you should strive for that validation, but it can be a little bit like yelling down a well being a writer because you punch out all these words, you send them off to an editor via the internet and you wonder, does anyone ever read it? And when you actually see someone do it, it is a bit of positive feedback, that and reviews that you get, obviously. But yeah, it, it's a little bit of a buzz, but more than a buzz, it lets you know people are actually reading it because it can be rather solitary. And what about the critics? How do you, how do you handle the critics? There's, there's so many naysayers and haters in the world these days and everybody's got the ability to be a critic. You know, I don't mind receiving constructive criticism on the things that I do. I'm, I'm all for yeah. that, you know, fix up my yeah. mistakes, tidy up my work. But what, what do you do when somebody hates on you? Well, look, the, it doesn't really worry me that much anymore. And I haven't taken the policy of I don't read reviews because they split into two areas. They split into people who may never have picked up a pen and just want to have a go at you. And if it's a personal attack, I just, it's water off a duck's back. But I have actually learned things from reviews and I, negative reviews, I should say, because my first self-published book was, was an experiment in many ways. And I got negative feedback that the cover didn't really portray the content, that it wasn't chronologically arranged as they might like. And I went back and I re-edited the book, got a new cover designed, and I learned from that criticism. Mm -hmm. If someone wants to make a personal attack on me or sometimes you get 
like I wrote a book, 50 Tales of Flight, and someone wrote a review saying this book has no plot. And you go, well, it's 50 tales. It <laughs> doesn't have a plot. Those sorts of ones you just have to let roll over you. But I split them into two areas, ones I can learn from and ones that I can't. And the ones that I can't, I just let slide by. These are negative reviews. And the ones I can, well, I try to enact it if I think it's worthy criticism because you're dead right. You can't know everything from the outset and it needs us an external set of eyes to make the product as good as it can be. It's funny, isn't it? You just need feedback from what you put out there into the world. Saying that you don't read reviews or take notice of them is like a politician saying that not, they're not looking at the polls, yeah. which is yeah. not true. Yeah. And if you don't, then you're missing the boat as well. Because if your community, be it a politician or a writer or a podcaster, is not feeding back in a positive way, then that's why you're doing it. You're doing it for them, not for yourself. You're writing for your readers. You know what's in your head. You're doing a podcast for your listeners. And if you don't take their feedback, you're not going to produce content that they want to hear, listen to or, or, or read. So it's, it's very, I think, immature not to, to listen to that feedback. Absolutely. Well, thanks for sharing that. I just want to shift gears a little bit to um, some of the younger members of our audience that may be in the last year of high school or considering moving into a career in aviation. Now, apparently there's a worldwide shortage of pilots that's coming up. It's always inevitable. It's always reported in the media of that. What would you say to a young person that was considering a career in aviation? And what would you say to them about going all in on that? You're right, there is a shortage, it's a looming shortage and the airline recruitment is reflecting that. There's always a two or three year lag in your training, so you have to project that will that shortage be there in two or three years. But if you have the passion to do it, and I think it applies to aviation or anything that you want to undertake, you basically need attitude, application and that passion. And if you can apply all three, then go for it. And it will take that commitment. You will see people who are half-hearted and in a career like aviation, they'll drop by the wayside because it takes discipline from the outset to do the subjects, to make the financial sacrifice, to make the social sacrifice. You've got a lesson at six o'clock in the morning. You won't be out with the lads on a Friday night. But if it's what you want to do, if you want to fly, and I'm not necessarily saying fly airliners. You might want to be a flying doctor pilot. My father flew the air ambulance for the last 10 or 15 years, and he said it was one of the best sections of his career. So if it's what you want to do, then you have to commit anything less than that. And you won't probably get there. So if you're in the last year of school, make sure that you've got the subjects that the airlines want so that you don't have to retrospectively go back and do mathematics or English or something. And then, yeah, just commit to it. And how you commit to it might once again, go back to the long-term goal. What do I want to do long-term? Do I want to be chief flying instructor? Do I want to be an airline captain? What do I want to do? and then work out your intermediate steps. Well, that's fantastic. You've had the uh, fortunate opportunity to fly how many different types of aeroplanes? Oh, it's approaching 100. It's, it's over 90, I know, at the moment. I, I'd have to go back and count, Robert. might have ticked over the 100, but uh, it's 90 to 100 types, yeah. And it's a, a, probably a common question, but I'm not going to ask it. Which, Which is favourite? Favorite? <laughs> uh, I was fortunate enough to fly in a two-seat Mustang once upon a time, which was a single-engine World War II fighter. And I would have to rate it as my favourite, partially because it is a classic aeroplane that everybody in aviation recognises. But it was also my father's favourite aeroplane. He flew it in the military many, many years ago, and he flew around 100 types of aeroplane. And he'd passed on at this stage, so there was that emotional attachment. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a favourite on many grounds. I'd grown up admiring this aircraft. 
It was something my father flew and there was the emotional as well as the aviator attachments. So I think I can say hand on heart, the Mustang was probably the favorite out of all of them. Now, I know you haven't had the opportunity to tear a hole in a real fighter jet, but you did have a chance to fly in an F-18 simulator. Was that a classic or a super? It was a classic. It was before the supers arrived, yeah. How was that? It was amazing. It was interesting because the instructor was actually a chap who had been a student of mine years before, and he was someone who went all in on his career, and he became a very highly qualified fighter pilot in the Air Force. And so there was that amazing sensation, obviously, to, to see it, the speed at which these things move, even though it was in a simulator, but also to see someone who did go all in achieve such heights in their career. Was it different getting in the F-18 simulator as compared to a 737 simulator? Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you're totally, I won't say totally at sea, but you're totally at home in a 737 having flown them for over 20 years. But uh, this was a totally different realm. And once again, as I said, complacency is a great enemy in aviation. If I got in and went, oh, look, I've done all this before, you would look like a clown. It is a totally different skill set. So being a pilot has to be adapted at all stages through your career to the environment you're in, the aircraft you're in. And I think that applies to life as well. As, as things change, your surroundings change, your aircraft change, you have to adapt. It's really interesting how uh, your career as an aviator translates so much into life and personal life. But I speak to a lot of different people and the careers that they have also translate into their life and their personal life. Sometimes I think there's no delineation between a career and your actual life. It's just your life. You know, it's not your job and what you do. It's just the way you live. It's your life. You're probably right. You're probably right there because... Um, Aviation does lead towards a person with a degree of self-discipline and uh, methodology, but the ability to think laterally when things happen beyond the scope of a checklist. Mm -hmm. And life's probably like that as well, or the way I live my life. So, yeah, I think you're onto something there. I think it's the way we live and then we adapt it to whatever aspect of our life rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. So tell me, um, what, what are you all in on at the moment from a business and a, and a professional perspective? Well, I'm all in. I'm writing two books at the moment, uh, one of which I'm converting to a paperback through a self-publishing process at the moment. And actually, you, you let the cat out of the bag before when you asked the question about applying um, principles of decision-making and that to everyday life. So that is a, a book I'm working on also, which I was keeping under wraps to some degree, which I think may well evolve into a course. Okay. But the writing all in is to execute these three books by year's end. The first one to have out and uh, in publication within probably the next month. So it's really related to your writing? Absolutely, yes. Yes, I, I'm always all in with my flying career. That's a prerequisite. If you're going to be a professional pilot, that is just par. There is no stepping up. Maybe when you do, you've got a check flight or you've got a, a course to do, but it, it's a given. If you're going to be a professional aviator, then that's a full-time commitment. So to answer your question above and beyond that, yeah, it's a commitment all into my, uh, my writing at the moment. Well, like everybody, you're a super busy guy with family, work and business and stuff like that. What, what daily habits do you have that keep yourself sharp and focused and motivated, particularly in and around aviation? I mean, having a job and going to work every day like that is um, laborious. And, you know, even on a, on a really good day, sometimes it can be a giant pain. How, how do you maintain motivation and focus to keep bringing your A game day after day? Yeah, I think... In terms of managing the family, etc., I do a lot of my writing early, early morning. Uh, I'm talking 4 a.m. till 6, 6.30. So that's one thing. Doing international operations allows me some time in hotel rooms. 
But in terms of bringing the A game, I think that's one of the biggest challenges when you're in airline operations. As you say, it, it, I wouldn't call it laborious, but it is you have a, a potential to go into Groundhog Day where, gee, it's the same again and again, and you follow the same checklist on the same aeroplane at the same port. But that is the challenge. And as a professional aviator, I always relate it to someone doing a, a theatre performance. You might have done the show 500 times, but those people have paid for that ticket to see that show and they've paid for your A game. And to do anything less, I think, um, impacts on your own professional integrity. So if you've got respect for the trade that you're in and for the way that you conduct it, I don't care whether I, I first flew a 737 in the early 90s or you know a year ago or yesterday. I have an obligation to operate that aircraft as the procedures and the manufacturer designs because I'm not that good. Those things were designed by people and their experience and other people have had failures. So my job is to bring that A game. That's the job, bring your A game. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the hardest things about being an aviator, and I know just from being a private pilot, is maintaining your medical. And as you get a little bit older, that gets a little bit harder. What do you do to stay ahead of the curve with your medical? Because that can kind of sideline you completely, right? Absolutely. I try to um, exercise most days. I, I'm probably not what you'd call a gym junkie, but I'd, I try to ride a bike each day. If I'm in a, a port where I'm away, I'll go for an extensive walk. I'll, I'll walk for three, four hours. Mm -hmm. I will just try to live a generally healthy lifestyle. And every year I try to do one thing that I adapt my diet or my exercise regime for. It might be a big thing. It might be just I cut out this in my diet or whatever. And that's allowed me to basically maintain the same weight for probably 20 years. But you're right. You, you have to make a conscious effort. And as you get older, it does get more difficult. Whereas you used to say, oh, I've just got my medical, I'll pop up the road and do it. You really have to be conscious that it's, it's another aspect of your job that you have to work at. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your all-in stories. Your, your methodical approach and your strategic approach to career and life is truly inspirational for me. I've been a huge fan of your stuff for a very long time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Where can people find out more about your books and your website? Uh, Rob, there's probably two places. Uh, the main one would be uh, owensup.com and the second is thepilotsblog.com. But the main resource really is at owensup.com. Okay, fantastic. And where are your books? Are they there as well? Yeah, yeah. There's links to all the books there and they're in some of the bookstores. They're all over the place. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I can give you a little plug too. Without Precedent is an absolutely fantastic story. And if you haven't read that, please go and uh, support Owen and get a copy of that. It's really cool. So thanks very much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And we look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Owen. See you soon. Thank you, Rob. Catch you later, mate. Cheers. Right, bye for now. Bye-bye.